My first thought is, don't you hate when the oldest old-timer looks younger than you? Right. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Jimmy. I'm an alcoholic. Hey. Grateful to be alive and sober, and uh, I am from New Jersey Shore, New Jersey. Woo! Yeah. My home group is called the Design for Living Group. If you ever wash up on the beach, just kick that sand off, and we'll, we'll put you back together again, believe me. I have a sponsor by the name of Bob B. from St. Paul, Minnesota. I sponsor a lot of crazy guys like me, and most importantly, I've been sober since my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was on March 28, 1987. Yeah. And I can't help but look at all these beautiful faces on a Sunday morning, and, you know, I know what you're thinking. Finally, someone who doesn't have an accent. <laughs> Well, I was up, oh man, I don't know what you guys putting your water down here, but I've been up for three days, and uh, you know, I'm rooming with my buddy Charlie over there, and I was up all night last night, and you know, I'm rehearsing the story in my mind, and I said to him, yeah, man, I gave a great talk at two o'clock in the morning. He goes, great, just put your suit on and do the same thing again, you know, so here I am, and uh, I just want to thank the committee, and more importantly, I'd really like to thank the chair, Jeannie. She's not getting enough credit. I know what it's like to put these things on and to have a committee behind you. If it. If it looks easy, it's because there's a lot of hard work that goes on to these things. And the registration table out there, they've been, you know, working hard all week. And that hospitality, let me talk, yeah. we go to a lot of places and, you know, we, we, I work with Lee over here. We travel all over and, you know, you don't see hospitality rooms like that one downstairs. I'm telling you that now. And, uh, It's been, it's been a long time since I've been in a crack den, but that thing down there, I'll tell you. <laughs> and it's the first hospitality room I ever saw where you had a van right out the door, outside the door that takes you right to detox after you get done in there. <laughs> and our speakers were great. I, it, this was like girls' weekend, right? All the girls' speakers, they just killed it. You know, Julie, Katie, Amy, Andrea. And, you know, Charlie was last night, and young Matt was downtown, and, uh, you know, I, I, I experienced what it feels like to be Charlie this weekend. And as many of you know, you know, Katie lets him know, I got five months more than you. You know, she doesn't stop with that. So <laughs> we're sitting over there the other day, and Ellen, I can't forget about Ellen. I lo uh, yeah. Ellen's great. Ellen on speaker. Not even, I hate saying that, Ellen on speaker. Just another person that God has put in my life, and uh, thank God for that. But I'm sitting over there with Katie, and she goes, yeah, I turned 60 in, uh, in March. And I said, oh, I turned 62 in February. And she goes, what's the date? Well, she goes, I said, I turned 60. She goes, what's the date? And I said, February 26th. She goes, oh, I'm March 22nd. I'm younger than you. You know, so <laughs> welcome to Charlie's world, you know. And, uh, And, you know, and I'm a little biased here, but, you know, I do work for Lee over here, but, you know, CDs and cassettes and all those things were so important to my life, I tell you. I listened to my first CD, my first cassette was a guy by the name of Ken Devaney from La Mesa, California. Probably some of you guys heard of him. And he is one of the funniest guys, still is one of the funniest guys in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll never forget this day. I was having a bad day, you know. You know those bad days where you just want to kill everyone, you know. And somebody handed me this cassette, and I popped this cassette in, and this guy starts rattling, and the jokes, he's, you know, Don Rickles, he's like, you know. And 
well, some of you young people might need to Google that, but, you know. <laughs> and I'll tell you, uh, you know, and then I met him 17 years later. I met him at a conference. And, uh, and you know, what a, what a strange little story because what I found out from him was that me and his nephew were bartending together for five years, never knowing that Ken was his uncle. So it's just a small world. And I'm not sure what the reputation we have down here in Arkansas about New Jerseyans, you know. Uh, I kind of got, you know, the idea when, uh, you know, you went to great lengths to protect my anonymity down here by putting that I'm from Tennessee on the flyer. <laughs> but then you took it a little bit step further. And, I, you know, you get this nice letter from the committee and it, it's the springtime in the Ozarks, nice letterhead. I'm not going to throw her under the bus who's sitting two seats away from me, but <laughs> she sorts the letter off by saying, Dear Joe. <laughs> so if we could start this tape over again. I'm Joe. I'm from Tennessee. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I, I, you know, the host is... I really love when you get a host. I mean, Pat is. Pat came to the airport, and uh, you know, typical. You know, you're from New Jersey, yeah. You know any gangsters like Tony, <laughs> like Tony Soprano? That's Pat. 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 That's a TV guy. I'm from the Jersey Shore. I know people like Snooky, Jaywell, <laughs> real people. You know. <laughs> but I'll tell you about our host. Now, if you're a normal person and you're in Newark or in the airport and you're just watching me and my buddy Charlie get off the plane and we meet Pat and, you know, we give a big hug, you know, that normal person must be saying to themselves, oh, look how nice that is. Probably old friends from the old days hugging. They're going to spend a weekend, a week together, whatever. What that normal person doesn't know is that we're complete strangers. And what that normal person doesn't know is we paid a heavy price for that hug. So thank you for welcoming us to Arkansas. Me and my boy Charlie over there. You know, I'm sitting in a railroad room apartment. And uh, if you don't know what a railroad room apartment is, it's about the width of this, like right here. And they were built in World War somewhere, I don't even know, in New York City. And they're long apartments with hallways that go from this wall to that wall back there with these little rooms. And I'm in this apartment, and I'm with this guy, and the idea back then was that you put as much family as possible coming over from Europe and, you know, all those areas into those houses, and that's how they lived back in the old days. And so there'd be a long hallway with 30 rooms, and there'd be your aunt, your uncle, your cousins, everyone, right? And I'm in this house, and I'm with this guy, and he's starting to ask me a couple of questions. And uh, he has this dog. It's a Jack Russell. Now, I don't know if anyone knows what a Jack Russell is. Well, I'll describe what this one was like. <laughs> This one was like taking a newcomer to his first meeting and, and allowing him to drink 30 cups of coffee. <laughs> and this dog never touched the ground. He just ran the walls like this. <laughs> like going down a drain, you know? And so this gentleman who was sitting across from me was asking me, he, he was asking me a few questions. And the first question he asked me was, how long can you hold your breath? How long can you be in a 12-step program and not work the 12 steps? What makes you alcoholic? Uh, uh, I drink too much. 
What does your relationship with God look like? What does your dependence upon God look like? What does your reliance upon God look like? I don't believe in God. Well, I do believe in God. I just don't think God's for me. I moved away from that, that a long time ago. Then he asked me a real, another question that was kind of strange. Where's your big book? <coughs> and I looked at him. I looked at those steely blue eyes that he had. I said, what's a big book? Now, I'm not, you know, embarrassed by those answers. What I'm really embarrassed about was I was five years sober when he was asking me them. <laughs> dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and not even know I was dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was born, I always like to say I was born perfect and I was quickly handed over to these two character defects called mom and dad. <laughs> and I'm sure there's people in this room, you know, you might laugh at that and I laugh at that, but you know what? I have this unique ability to blame everyone for everything I do, what has ever happened in my life, for consequences, for the way I think, the way I behave, you know, everything. It's always been my parents' fault. And all they've ever tried to do for me was to give me love, give me affection. You know, all they ever tried to do was teach me morals and values and all that stuff, and it never worked on me, you know? And what my parents didn't know, that when they took me home from the hospital and they crossed that threshold into their living room, exactly seven miles west, of their front door, and 20 years earlier, on the sixth floor of an address of 17 William Street, there was an office called Honor Dealers. And there was this fledgling society in there that were writing this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. That eventually they would take our name from that book and what that book did for their parents, for me, my parents didn't know, it was going to give me a way of life that my parents could never provide for me. Later on in life, when I moved down to Jersey Shore from where I lived, there's a real special place down there that we go to a lot. I know Katie's been there. And you drive through these big gates. It is this big, it's a big cement and then these gates. And you, you go to the left and you go up this hill, the big oak tree, and you park your car right there. You get out of your car, and you walk 25 yards down from 12 o'clock to 7 o'clock, and you turn around, and there's these two headstones. On one, it says Antoinette Silkworth, and then on the other one, it says William Duncan Silkworth. Now, why that's important is because that man who was writing that book for us in this room today met that guy. And what that man said to Bill after Bill had his white light experience was, I don't know what the hell happened to you, but you better hang on to it. And you better put it into a book eventually because people in Arkansas, people in Missouri, people in Oklahoma, and people in New Jersey are going to need that book. And thank God for our history. And thank God for the pioneers who walked this path before us. There isn't a day when I sit down with a newcomer and I'm reading uh, the preface in the forwards and I'm crying. He's like, what's the matter with this guy? <laughs> and why I'm crying is because of the gratitude that I've gotten in these rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for the path that these guys marked out for us so we could be in Eureka Springs this weekend having a good old time. Thank God. So I'm, waking, I'm growing up in this house and I'm, you know, I don't, I don't belong in this house and I know that from a young age. You know, I compare myself to my brothers, my sisters, they're educated, they're successful. 
You know, uh, my dad, it was the early 60s. I was born in 58. You know, uh, dad was a butcher. Mom was a stay-at-home mom. You know, the only requirement for membership was, the, uh, you know, uh, five or more kids in the neighborhood. Uh, it was a good time. It was a safe time. It was a... It, I lived in this town called Jersey, well, it's a city, Jersey City, which is on the other side, the Holland Tunnel from Manhattan. You know, brick and mortar. If you had a piece of grass, you were rich. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the great lines that Ken Devaney always used to say that really kind of shows you where I grew up. You know, you know, a guy would say, "There's a dead bird," and we'd all look up. You know, I mean, um, <laughs> that's kind of the intellect we had. You know, and I'm growing up in this town, and uh, you know, I'm growing up in this house, and uh, and I just don't feel right. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is until I land in here with you fine folks. You know, but something's going on in here. Something. Something's missing. And I don't know that, that this is, you know, alcoholism. All I know is that I got these brothers and sisters who always pick on me. I got this dad who's always screaming at me. I got this mom who's always hitting me. You know, I mean, I got all this stuff again. And I'm confused about life. I'm confused about God. I'm confused about alcohol. Because what would happen in my house every day at 5 o'clock would be my mom would make these two pitchers, one Manhattans and one Martinis. And she would make them for my mom and for herself and for my dad. Now, my dad was a Korean War vet. My dad was a tough guy. He was, you know, he's a guy you just didn't cross. You know, uh, he was cunning, baffling, and powerful in his own way. Wasn't an alcoholic, but he had all those isms. He seemed to live on page 52 all day long. He was filled with, you know, depression and anger and fear and all that stuff. But what I would witness as a young child is when they came home and they sat down and they poured that first drink, what I would experience is the ease and comfort that comes at once by taking that first drink. And again, the mind is being molded, this perception. This is what alcohol does for you. Where I grow up, there's a bar in every corner. You know, there's a bar on one corner and there's a liquor store on the other corner. That's how it is in the city. And when I walk up to the schoolyard to play ball, you know, I'm passing that bar and I'm 8, 9, 10, 11 years old and I'm looking in that bar and I, I see you guys. Hey, how you doing? I see you guys, you know. And you're playing pool and you're shuffleboard and the game's on there and the girls are looking good. And again, I'm not drinking, but guess what? This thing is being molded in my mind. Well, that day came. I was 13 years old. I had those strong warnings that we all get from our parents. You better not be hanging out with those kids, but here I am with those kids. And I can remember, it, it is so bizarre, and I'm sure a lot of people in this room are like this too. I remember my first drink. I remember that day like it was yesterday. You know, I don't even know what I did today so far, but I can remember 48 years ago, 48 years ago, being in that cemetery with five guys I could still name their names. And here comes that bottle. Colt 45 malt liquor. I don't know if you have that down in Arkansas. <laughs> but I throw my hand in it and I start guzzling that Colt 45 malt liquor, right? Here comes that second bottle. It's Mohawk Blackberry Brandy. And I start drinking that Blackberry Brandy. Now, you hear this term all the time in Alcoholics Anonymous. We live life forward, but we understand it backwards. I look back today and I know I'm alcoholic right out of the gate. I know it. Why? Because I can't control the amount once I start. I got this thing, as I find out later on, is an allergy to alcohol. And I can't, you know, I, it's in me. And I can't, I'm guzzling, I'm drinking. You know, I have no power, no choice, control over that drink at the age of 13 years old. I recently went to a wedding of one of our friends in New York City. And, uh, you know, uh, his, it was a second marriage. He has a 13-year-old daughter. And he said, uh, uh, he, he asked me to bring my, like, fifth cousin or whatever he is. I call him my nephew, but he's, like, down the food chain. 
and he's 13 years old. So I bring him to this wedding because his daughter likes him. That's why I had to bring him. And so I'm looking, I'm, but I'm, the thing about that is I'm looking at this 13-year-old kid and his face, and I'm like, what was the matter with me at 13 years old that I needed a drink? What was going on in my life that I needed a drink? Not only did I find out that I had this allergy that day, well, I don't find out, I just know something's different than my friends, but I got this obsession, this idea that's so strong it overcomes all other ideas. I can't wait till next Friday. I can't wait till after the dance. I can't wait till, you know, whenever. I can't wait to drink again. The magic elixir, I found the solution to my problem, just like many of us in this room today. And I can't wait to do this again. 13, 14, 15 years old, and I'm just drinking on weekends. I'm drinking with my friends. I'm never in trouble. By the time I'm 18 years old, I'm an everyday drinker. Now, I'm not drinking and get loaded every day, but I'm drinking like my dad, just to take that ease and comfort that, you know, comes out once by taking a few drinks. You know, I just want to back up a little bit. You know, another reason why I'm really confused about alcohol is because this guy, Dad, you know, he comes in the door at 5 o'clock, and, you know, he's angry, he's mad, he's pissed off at, world, at the world, and he takes that drink. Everything's okay all of a sudden. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. All of a sudden, we're having a catch in the yard. All of a sudden, you know, he's telling jokes. But then there's those other days. And sometimes it only takes one drink where Dad would go on a blackout. You black out doesn't mean you're alcoholic, you're just blacked out. And all of a sudden, here come the plates across the kitchen. Here comes those chairs across the kitchen. If you grabbed one of us kids, we'd be going flying across the kitchen. So that was the fear with alcohol. The fear was that, man, I don't want to be like this, but I want to be like this. You know, I'm like this. So, you know, just moving on, going through high school, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the drunk log here, but, you know, I'm in high school, and, you know, that's always interesting for us when we're budding alcoholics, right? You know, the drinking age was 18. I went to a prep school with Jesuits. You know, I identify with Matthew so much. You know, when I was in eighth grade, my parents took me out of the public school system, and, and, they, and she put me in with the Catholic school system, and right away, contempt. I hated these nuns that I had. You know, they were different. You know, I couldn't see that my parents were trying to improve my life. I took it I think they were trying to hurt me by pulling me away from my friends. So now I'm in this Catholic education, you know, I don't believe in God, or I do, but I don't know, you know, I don't even know what that means, you know, and I'm in high school now, and, you know, the best way I could describe my high school years, well, let me ask a question. Has anyone ever urinated in a strange place thinking you were in a bathroom? <laughs> Whoa. That must be that Arkansas moonshine you guys are drinking. Well, I never did that, but... Uh, I was just curious. <laughs> no, that happened all the time, right? Because I lived in this 8 by 11 room, two brothers, bunk beds. My brother's like me. He's puking off the side. I'm peeing on his sweaters. It's a normal day in my house. <laughs> my, mom was this my mom was the secretary to the, to the principal in the school. And the great enabler, my mom, who I'll talk about a little bit later on. She got me out of every jam ever. You know, and uh, I'm in class one day, and this priest comes up to me, and he's kind of yelling at me. And, you know, I'm a, you know, one of the things when we were growing up is your parents, you know, it was safe back then. You know, you leave the house at 8 o'clock, you're walking the streets with your buddies, you know, uh, never really trouble. They know you would, like, land in someone's neighbor's house if you got hungry, and they'd just feed you, you know. But the problem with doing that was that when you live on the streets, you become the streets. And I became a little thief. 
You know, we were stealing from candy stores, robbing candy stores, doing all, and I don't need the money, but again, I'm trying to buy people, because I'm paralyzed by what you think of me. I'm just like buying a drink for someone in a bar. I need friendships. So I'm buying, you know, I'm doing all these things. But I'm in, the, I'm in this school, and the priest is asking some questions. I'm kind of a smart ass, so I'm giving, him a, I'm giving it back. He throws me out. And uh, when I go outside, he's, you know, he comes out, and he starts shaking me. And I drop my books, and he walks back in the room, and I'm like, what, what was that all about? So I open up the door, and I go, Father, you know, and I said, what? and he comes right at me. And so the street guy comes out, and I grab this priest, and I put him against the wall, and I knock him out. Oh, yeah, I hit a priest. Yeah, ain't, yeah. You thought you were crazy? Oh. But there's a good ending to this story, because, you know, that, hit, that hits my inventory sheet down the road, you know? punched the priest. So now i got to go find this priest. And I find this priest, but guess what? He's not a priest anymore. Matter of fact, when I start making my amends to him, he starts making his amends to me. And I'm saying, this sounds very familiar. <laughs> Winds up being one of us. And uh, wound up having about seven kids. So if you're a priest in here and you want to get out, just some, see me in the, in the alleyway. <laughs> I'll knock it right out of you. <laughs> But that, you know, that's just a typical day in high school. I mean, that's, that's who I am. I'm nuts. I'm crazy, you know. And, uh, you know, and then I go on to the greatest 10 years of my life called college. I mean, it was wonderful, you know. And, uh, <laughs> now, I, I went with nine friends, uh, nine city guys. We'd go to the mountains of Pennsylvania to college. And just like that movie Animal House, uh, you know, we lasted like, you know. One of the greatest things about college, and I'm going to give you some education to you uh, budding uh, uh, couples of you know, husbands and wives here that might have uh, college kids and you don't know this yet. If you cancel that class within the first two weeks, uh, that check goes to the student, not the parents. Now, when I found that out, that was like hitting lotto because uh, <laughs> so I was dropping classes at a pretty rapid rate in college, and so uh, that's why I didn't make it. So, but again, Alcoholism is starting to, you know, it's eating me up, and I don't know it. You know, I'm that guy who looks out here all day long. I don't want to look in here. You know, I'm a street guy. I don't, you know, street guys don't, we don't talk about how we feel. We don't talk about anything, you know. And, uh, and I come home from college, you know. I, I, you know, the other thing, too, is what I realized about me is that, you know, God planted this chalkboard in my mind. And there's three categories in this chalkboard. And I seem to be going to him to a lot. And on one side is shame. In the middle is guilt. And the last thing is remorse. And everything I'm doing up to the age of 19, 18, 19, 20 years old, I'm already feeling the effects of the shame and the guilt and the remorse and how I don't measure up and how I'm not good enough and how and on, on and on and on again. So I come home from college and, you know, I have no trade, I have no education, what is a guy to do? Well, I do what I do. I go down to the corner bar and try to figure it out. Because that's where guys like me go, down to the corner bar and trying to figure it out. And you know, I try to go to the union hall, you know, I try to be an iron worker. Little did I know I was afraid of heights. I'm afraid being up here, I mean, looking down, looking down at Katie, I'm getting a little dizzy up here. You know, but that's what I did. I, I didn't know what to do. I had no guidance. I had no direction. I had no God in my life. I didn't have you guys in my life. And I'm drinking every day. I'm drinking every day. And I'm just trying to wash my day away. I'm in a bar one day, and there she is. Ladies, this is how I do uh, uh, 
relationships. I see my sister over there. I say, listen, I'm going to buy you an illegal substance if you introduce me to her. She does. Seven months later, I'm engaged to get married. And that's how I do relationships. Um, there's no courting. There's no dating. There's no nothing like that. There's no intimacy. There's no nothing. But we wind up getting married, me and this woman. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, in the, I'm, in the, I'm in the grip of the grape. I don't even know it. I, I just can't stop drinking. You know, drinking is more important than anything in my life. And I get in this marriage, and again, I'm under that delusion, that psychotic, wishful thinking, as we know, you know, that if I get married and get my life and get a job and get some money in my pocket, everything's going to look perfect, right? Four months into the marriage, I walk out of the marriage because king alcohol is too important to being a, a husband or being a friend. And I walk away from this relationship. And I walk away from my family. And I take off for my second home, which is Florida, Boca Raton, Florida. And I'm in one of my friend's family's homes. It's a condo. It's a million-dollar condo. It's beautiful. And I'm in this room, and I'm looking out that glass windows, and I can see the beach. I can see the bikinis. I can see the sun. I can see everything a man would want. And I'm a prisoner of this room, and I can't get out. And every day I get that knock. And we all know that knock of the four horsemen, terror, frustration, bewilderment, despair. Why am I like this? Why can't I stop drinking? Why, 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 why? I have a million questions that I can't answer, but I know one thing always works because to me it's still a solution to my life. And all I need to do is pick up a bottle and crack the seal of a bottle of Johnny Walker Red, and I know that that feeling of feeling better is going to happen. I don't even need to take the drink. I know it's coming. And all of a sudden that grandiosity and that perfect little kid that blamed everyone for the way he feels, the way all of a sudden I'm back in action, and it's her fault. It's my parents' fault. It's not enough money. It's not the right job. It's, I got a litany of excuses why I feel the way I feel and why it's all your fault. No wonder why I have such a problem when I come in here and I celebrate a year and I look at that coin and that coin says to, you, to thy own self be true. What the hell does that mean? What does it mean to be honest? I don't even know. That's a golden rule of recovery. As we know, we just read how it works. Three times rigorous honesty has to be, has to be had in here in order to stay, to stay here. So here I am in that condo, and I come, you know, I stay down there for seven months. No one knows where I'm at, and I eventually come back to New Jersey. And I'm in a bar one day, again, in New Jersey, and I'm with these two firefighters. And the firefighters are looking at me, and they say, man, you need help. And I'm like, I don't need help, you know. If I could just get a job, if I could just do this, if I could just do that, you'll be okay. And they said, no, we know these people that could help you. And I said, who are they? they he goes, I think they come from AA and A or A or something like that, you know. <laughs> I said, well, call them up. We'll have a conversation. So here we go. We go to this apartment, and two of you fine men come to this apartment. But you're talking about you, and I want to talk about me. <laughs> See, I'm just, wait, if I'm going to talk to you, I need to tell you about what's going on in my life. But what these men did was they, untold, they told their story. You know, I always look at that picture of the man in the bed, and man, that was like that day. I just sat there, and these two men were giving me the treatment for alcoholism. They were telling me their story. And then, though they took me to a detox, and I got to that detox that night, these are all foreign words to a guy like me from the street. AA, sobriety, recovery. I never heard things like this before. And here I am, I'm in this detox, and I'm sitting there, and I got a roommate who happens to be a heroin addict. I never did heroin in my life. I don't even know what that's like. And this guy's in so full-blown withdrawals. And here's how my mind works. I'm not like that guy at all. My case is different. And I AMA my way out of there. And what do I do? I go right back to the bar. Because that's all I know. I know to go to the bar. 
I don't go back to family. I don't go anywhere. I, it's, it's like AA, kind of, but in reverse. I go to the bar where I need, I need to be around my people. And my life is kind of pathetic. I really don't do much in my life, you know. One day I walk in a bar and, uh, you know, two old-timers again. There's a lot of old-timers in the bar, I'll tell you, like AA, but they're still drinking. Um, a lot of good guidance, you know. They said, hey, Jimmy, you need to go to Newark Airport. Finally, finally, I'm being acknowledged for my potential. You need to go to Newark, because they're hiring guys like you. So I go to Newark Airport. I just turned 29 years old, and I'm dying of alcoholism, and I have no clue. I can't stop drinking. And I walk into Newark Airport, and the best way to describe the way I felt is, and it took me a, many years to find, to really put this into words, but what happened on that day is I sat down on this metal chair. No words could tell of the loneliness and despair I felt in a bit of morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I have met my match. I've been overwhelmed. Alcohol is my master. It took me many years when I read Bill's story in his first experience, first step experience, is where I finally found myself sitting in a chair, Newark Airport, 29 years old, a broken man. I looked like I was 129 years old. But I'll tell you how God works since I am the spiritual work, uh, speaker. That's another thing, too. A lot of people came up to me this weekend. They said, uh, you're the spiritual speaker? And I, I owe you an amends because I said yes. Uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you how God works. As I sat there, a stranger sat down right next, door, next to me. And at that time, people weren't asking me how the weather was or how my, uh, you know, my uh, you know, retirement account was doing or uh, how's the kids or anything like that. He looked at me and he said, what's your problem? And for whatever reason, I spit up my life story on this guy in about 10 minutes. Call it a moment of clarity, God's grace, whatever you want to do. But I told this guy my story, and he looked at me, and he goes, I have the answer for you. And I said, what's that? Is it possible for you not to drink tonight, he said to me. I said, I don't know. He said, where do you live? And at the time, I was kind of couch surfing wherever I could land. I could land. And he said, be outside that house and don't drink the rest of this day. But for the grace of God, that did happen. And I find myself outside this apartment at 7 o'clock on that night. And what happened was that stranger that I met earlier in the day pulled up in a car with a bunch of other strangers. And they said the most important thing you'll ever hear in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, get in the car. <laughs> I, think, I think they might have also thrown in and shut up or something like that. But. <laughs> so here I am, I'm in a car with strangers and I'm going around the corner. And where are we going? My grammar school, where I have such contempt for everything where I hate everyone there, I hate the school, I hate the teachers, I hate everything. And they walked me into the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for years I thought it was bingo was going on. It was you people, it was AA, who knew, you know? <laughs> and I go in there and, uh, and what happened was the miracle. And what the miracle is, is just like you guys were doing all weekend, you met me at the front door. And you lived up to your responsibility. And you pulled me on this light bulb recovery. And you sat me up front and you gave me a half a cup of coffee. And you gave me something that we need to, they gave me something that is so important that we need to give to every newcomer, to our newfound friend that's here tonight, to every person that's maybe with 30 years sobriety who has fallen asleep in your recovery. What they gave me that day was a piece of dignity.
they made, they made me feel welcome. They didn't care what I looked like. They didn't care what I smelled like. They didn't care that every other word was a profanity. They didn't care. Keep coming back, kid. 29 years old in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was like a grammar school reunion, to tell you the truth, because there were so many I thought you died. I thought you were in jail. I mean, <laughs> who knew? You know, who knew where you, where you were? So here goes my journey, you know, and I'm in AA, and, you know, you know, somebody recently asked me, why do you stay in AA so long? Other than the grace of God and the 12 steps, what keeps you coming? And I'll tell you what keeps me coming. And it's clear as a bell. On day seven, they told me, this guy, uh, Richie Schnoor, he just passed away, 37 years sobriety of leukemia, the man at 12 step. He became my first sponsor. On day seven, he goes, your job is to clean the ashtrays. And I said to him, I don't smoke. He goes, I don't care. Clean the ashtrays. And I wanted to fight him, but guess what? It might have been the first time in my life I listened to that intuitive thing that this guy's not trying to hurt me, he's trying to help me. And I trusted him. And I never smoked a cigarette in my life. So what my answer to that thing is, what keeps me coming is, I've had a job since that day in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what keeps me coming. You know, but what's really important was on day two. Day one was a miracle. I landed in here. Well, what was really a miracle for me was day two. Because, again, I'm a street guy. We don't talk about how we feel. I'm a tough guy. You know, we don't, have, we don't show emotion. We don't do any of that stuff. But on day two, he picked me up to go to a meeting. And I looked at him and I said, Richie, I want a drink. He goes, I know you do. And I remember him saying, calling, talking to his wife saying, listen, whatever we have to do today, you take care of it. I'm going to stay with this kid all day. And that night, oh, that day, he took me to three meetings. And at the, top, at the third meeting, something of a miracle happened to a guy like me. The obsession to drink was lifted. And I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to drink. I've been drinking for 17 years at that point, and I didn't want to drink. And I don't need to say that again, and I don't need to express the feeling behind that, because everyone in, that, in this room right now, right now knows what that feeling is. I don't want to drink. I don't know what I want to do, but I don't want to drink. That's a miracle for me. So I start my life in AA, and, you know, and I'm in a fellowship, and I'm doing all the things we do in a fellowship. You know? I've learned how to make coffee. I've learned how to you know, set up, break down, go to bookers. And we have, I use a lot of terms from Jersey. Some of you might not know it, but we do a lot of things in a fellowship. You know? And uh, I got back with that wife who was in limbo. We went through counseling. We did a lot of work with each other you know, to rebuild that trust, and uh, you know, we're back together again. And, uh, you know, we have these two little AA babies, you know, who are 28 and 25 today, you know. And, you know, from the, you know, from, but from the untrained eye, it looks like normal living is a solution to alcoholism. Now I got the house, I got a job, I got money, I got the car. I should be well, right? Well, I'm in a meeting one day and I'm telling this story and, you know, I'm talking. And I'm at the podium and I'm doing a talk on a second step, you know. And I uh, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. But I don't believe in God, but I'm lying to everyone in the room here. Why? It's because I'm paralyzed by what you think of me. I'm in total self-centered fear, and little do I know that my fear will always revolve around three things. Not getting what I want, losing what I already have, or being found out. And it's that insecurity that has always driven me. 
of being found out, that I'm not good enough, you don't like me, blah, you know, all that drama. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And here I am, I'm giving this talk, and at the end of the talk, we do the cha-cha line. Yeah, thanks a lot, thanks a lot, thanks a lot, you know? And here comes a guy, he's six foot four, I'm six foot four, and he's coming right up to me, and I, I, I'm thinking he's going to thank me, you know? Of course, I, I enlightened him some way, you know? <laughs> and he gets to the podium, and he says to me, you're screwed, but in a little bit saltier language, you know? And I want to step back, and I want to punch this guy in the face in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I don't know how to face resistance with no resistance. I don't know how to face conflict in my life without anger, without physicality, or just doing something crazy, because I don't know how to talk from here. That hasn't been developed yet. And I want to punch this guy in the face, but guess what? I take a step back, and I look him in his eyes, and I said, you're right. I need help at five years, dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's when I found myself that next morning, uh, September of 1992, in that railroad room apartment, and he's asking me these questions. And this guy named Bill Grace, he came from St. Paul, Minnesota, the same place where my sponsor is today, ironically. And what he started to do was what no other man was doing for me in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was opening up that blue book. You know, he gave me a book, and it was my book, and I was, like, really proud. I still have that book at home. You know, but we started to go, what makes you alcoholic, Jim? I had no idea about this physical allergy, this mental obsession. But more importantly, Charlie likes twofold, threefold, fivefold, whatever you like. I come from a place that's threefold, you know, physical, mental, and spiritual. And, yeah, I understand the allergy because, you know, I'm reading Dr. Silkworth's uh, story, right? I identify with that. And like I said, I live right by his gravesite any given day. You drive by that gravesite, you look to the right as you're driving by, you will find two folding chairs and two people sitting there reading the doctor's opinion at his gravesite. I'm getting goosebumps even freaking thinking about that right now. But it's unbelievable. So I'm going through this book, and I'm starting to find out what I'm really up against. You know, I'm starting to understand about this obsession. But more importantly, he started to go within. And now I start to look at that spiritual malady that all of us suffer from. But a lot of our meetings, we don't talk about this stuff. Why? Well, you know, that's kind of like, you know, you know don't drink, go to a meeting, you know, put the plug in a jug. And I'm not knocking out of that. If that's working for you, great. It's working for you. But it wasn't working for me. You know, and I had to start to get down the causes and conditions of my alcoholism. And I sat with Bill, and we were starting to go through these steps. And I'll never forget when I took my third step. First of all, I understood the problem. Second, I understood the solution. You know, when I sit with guys in my house right now, you know, I kind of give them a little bit of a visualization. I said, you know, at this table right now, this kitchen table, we're going to find out what the problem and the solution is. Then we're going to get off this table, off these chairs, and we're going to get to the starter line. It's the hallway to my house. And in that hallway in my house, we're going to go through that hallway, and eventually we're going to walk out that glass door into the sunlight of the spirit, because that's really the goal line here, guys. That's really the goal line, is to have a spiritual experience, spiritual awakening, psychic change, whatever you want to call it. We have to have it in order to stay. So that's what he started to do for me. And I'll never forget getting on my knees. I never held a man's hand. I never touched a man in my life unless I punched him. <laughs> now that sounds kind of weird, but that I just said that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but here I am, I'm on, my knee, I'm on my knees and I'm holding this man's hands. And... Uh, we're saying this third step prayer. We went through the whole third step. He talked about like Katie and Charlie talked about, you know, the actor trying to run the show, this and that and everything else. And I'm holding my hand, I'm holding his hands, an affirmation of really the third step. And I'm looking out of the corner of my eye because I'm praying nobody sees me. I'm ashamed of what I'm doing because I'm scared. But tough guys don't let you know that I'm scared. 
But there's another part of me, and I, it's kind of weird. Like, I can't believe I'm finally doing something good in my life. I'm finally taking some directions. And I'll never forget when I got off my niece, he gave me the paperwork and it was start inventory. And I'm not going to go through every step with you, but what happened was, I'll never forget this day. It was probably the most powerful day of my life other than my two children being born. I'll never forget being in that hospital, and you parents know this already. You know, the doctor hands you the baby, cut the umbilical cord, your heart splits open with such a joy you never experienced in your whole life, a love that you never experienced in your whole life. There's such an emotional shift in your body and mind at that moment. That's what happened to me on my original fit step. Because for the first time in my life, the guy who was going to the secret, who was going to his grave with every secret possible, I shared my whole life story with a man that I trusted. And I purged all this stuff. And there was no secrets. And he gave me some real important instruction like that hour after the, uh, and I didn't go home like it says in a book, you know. But I went to this place called Liberty State Park. Liberty State Park is a park right across Manhattan. And there, right at that wall, right there, that's the Statue of Liberty. Right at that back wall, right there, that's the World Trade Center. Right there at that wall is Ellis Island. Symbols of freedom in my mind. And what happened on that day, after that hour, asking God to thank, you know, thanking God for those, in those first five proposals and thanking him for what just what happened to me. For the first time in my life, at the age of 32 years old, I sat there crying my eyes out, and for the first time I could feel the arms of God wrapped around me. And I knew for the first time I was going to be okay. That God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. I was having the infancy of a spiritual awakening. And I can cry right now. That's how powerful that was for me that day. Yes. But I fell for the trap. I fell for the trap. Because, yeah, I'm back with that wife. And I'm back with those kids. And I'm an active member of my home group. And I'm doing all those things that we do, but I fell for the biggest trap in Alcoholics Anonymous. I fell prey to comfortability. And all of a sudden, the pain was gone, but I wasn't doing enough to be free. I got stuck halfway down that hallway, and I didn't know it. And that delusional thinking started to come back. And all of a sudden, overtime was more important than continuing. All of a sudden, being a coach of a basketball team and a baseball team, and you name it, nothing wrong with that. It just that that became my primary purpose. And as my sponsor likes to say today, God, AA, your significant other, your children, your career, and your money, don't screw up the order. Well, I screw up the order a lot. And I'm screwing the order up, and here's the problem. I just suffer from a disease of perception. We hear that all the time. I got the blinders on. I don't see that I'm screwing my life up. I don't see that I just walked off the beam that's keeping me sober and keeping me sane. And all of a sudden, you know, all this stuff becomes more important than my recovery. And I don't even know it. That's how scary this stuff is, guys. And I'm walking down this path, and six years past, seven years past, eight years past, you know, and yeah, if you looked at my life, yeah, it does look like everything's perfect. I have a beautiful home on the Jersey Shore. I live on the beach. Who, who would not want to live there? You know, I got all, I got beautiful kids. They're, they're okay. Everything is good in my life. And I'm nuts again. And at 10 years of sobriety, I do what most cowards do. I run out of this woman's life again. Again, and I run into the arms of a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous at 10 years without a drink, and I blow my life up. 
I'm the guy you read in a book that builds this beautiful spiritual structure and I tear it down with a senseless series of sprees and you don't have to be drinking to blow your life up in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I run into this relationship and I, July 8th, my son's birthday, July 9th, my daughter's birthday, July 10th, I walk out on him. And I got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old looking at me. And the eight-year-old, my daughter, is saying, you're going where? You're leaving? What? You're what? What? Doesn't understand. And here's the level of what she talked about yesterday. My selfishness, I don't care. I do care, but I don't. Because the power of my will is a lot stronger than the power of will of God in that moment. Right? So I just walk out without even saying anything. And, I'm, and I don't want to forget this one part because this is so important. I just want to jump this in here right now. The power of the immense. I heard a good friend of ours in California who kind of did the same thing. And one of the ladies grabbed him in his home group and goes, you might not be someone's husband, but you'll always be someone's child, uh, father. Never forget your children. And I never forgot that. And I never forgot my children. And yeah, I became that weekend dad. But the good news out of all that and walking out on that eight-year-old is this. In seven months from today, I am going to be walking that little girl down the aisle. Now I got to pick out a you know a daddy daughter dance. I don't know what to do. You know she's a country. What's who listens to country music? I mean, yeah, I know. I was, I was, I was waiting for that. Uh, but I walk into this other relationship, and what do I bring into that relationship? I don't bring love, respect. I bring the tornado. I bring alcoholism right into that deal. And I bring me into her. And I'll tell you, within three or four years, I'm in a suit, dressed just like I am now, without a beard, maybe some hair left at that time. I don't remember. And here I am. And uh, the judge is right there. And he's holding a meeting book, New Jersey meeting book. And he's circling some meetings. And I'm watching him circling. He goes, Mr. Argelin, that's my last name. He goes, you are banned from these three meetings. And my first thought was, who the hell gets banned from AA? I do. I, can't, I couldn't believe it. And because she was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I was banned from AA. And so, you know, I got to tell you guys. No words could tell the loneliness and despair. I felt in the bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I've been overwhelmed. Self-reliance is my master. I didn't need a drink in that moment. I felt just as low there than I did any time in my life. You know, and I walked out of there, and I walked into this meeting a couple weeks later, and, man, I wanted to kill myself. I couldn't believe how I blew my life up. I couldn't believe the harm and, and all the things that I was doing. And I walked in a meeting one night, and there was this guy by the name of Peter M. from Brooklyn. And he was doing a workshop, who ironically, his sponsor was Mark Houston at that time, too. And I walked into this meeting, and, you know, I'm dying, but I hear this guy, and my ego just kicks right up. I'm like, what a fraud this guy is. All of a sudden, I knew everything, you know. But what happened was I sat with Peter, and I started to... You know, I asked him to be my sponsor. And what happened over a 15-year period, he was my sponsor. 
And again, I had to go through those 12 steps. I had to start doing the things that we do. You know, I just want to like give you a couple of little stories in there, you know. You know, when I was growing up, you know, one of the things that was really important was like, I was just crazy, right? And so, you know, growing up in the town that I grew up in, you know, when I was really drinking a lot, you know, we had this crazy politician, this crazy mayor, right? He's probably one of us now, you know? And matter of fact, now that I think about it, <laughs> when they hauled him out of the courtroom in handcuffs and, uh, you know, because of wiretrapping and uh, money laundering and all those things, I remember he was mumbling something, and I DVR'd, DVR'd that recently, and, and I got what the mayor was saying. He was saying, I'm going to move to Eureka Springs, and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, Oh, but to be honest with you, but, but what happened was this, so this guy thinks it's a good idea to have, uh, to let all the bars march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade, right? And I have to tell this story because it's all about being a chameleon. Any other chameleons in here? Oh, thank God. Last time I did that, I thought I was at a PTA meeting. Nobody raised their hand. And if you don't understand that, do you ever pretend to be someone you're not? Well, that's me. So here I am, and we're in this parade, right? And so what goes on at this parade is, uh, you know, they have the Cub Scouts, the bands, all this stuff like that. And, uh, you know, they have all the bars. There's millions of bars where I lived. We're in the back. We have our hoods open. You know, the cool is going. We are drinking, drinking. We're getting loaded, right? And so now it's our time, our turn to uh, start walking. So one of the things that they used to do in this town was that every bar had a bar flag. Now think Olympics, okay? So every bar had a bar flag, and you would hold your bar flag and march in this, you know, in this parade. Now if you got asked to hold this flag, this was like hitting lotto. This was like, whoa, I'm the flag holder for my bar, right? <laughs> you could see my intellect in those days, right? It was like, this, this is stimulating to me, you know? So here we are, you know. So they said, Jimmy, you're going to be the flag holder. Oh my God, this is great. So I said, I'm going to have some fun with this. So I made some decisions that day. Looking back, they weren't very good decisions, but... So I, obviously I got drunk, you know, right? The second de uh, decision I made is uh, I have complete uh, respect for the singleness of purpose in Alcoholics Anonymous. But the second thing I did is I dropped a hit of acid. Now, I know that's not right to say that, and sometimes, because, you know, you're looking at it all, that's like here, like so many young people, I look at them when I say that, it's like finding out your parents had sex, right? And you're like, oh, like that, you know? <laughs> And the third thing I did was, uh, unlike some of the weenie kids in here, you know, who uh, go to a game or a Halloween party, and they get that spray paint, and they go in and take a shower, it all comes off, I go down into Dad's basement, underneath the staircase where all the cobwebs are, where it's pitch black, and I find that gallon paint of Kelly Green lead-based paint that, that he used to paint the foundation of the house with, right? And I decide to paint myself head to toe green. <laughs> Believe me, this is a great day. So, so I'm bombed, I'm tripping, I'm, you know, all that, and I'm green. And, uh, and I had hair back then, so it looked like my finger was in an electric, electric socket. It was like straight up. I was like, ooh, electrified. Great day. And I'm walking down the parade holding a flag. I look like a jolly green giant. Get back to the bar. Old Irish lady, very nice. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. You must be so proud of your heritage. What are you talking about? I'm Polish and Hungarian. That's the kind of guy I am. Uh, 
So fast forward, you know, so I, I, uh, you know, I, I get with this guy, Peter, and I start to go through the steps, and I start to rebuild my life, and, you know, I, I got the kids, and, you know, things are going pretty well, and, and you know, and, and, and then this woman asked me to speak in the World Trade Center. There used to be a meeting called the Tower Group in the World Trade Center, and uh, what happened was when the towers came down, a lot of our, us, our members, died from that meeting. It was a 12-15 meeting that made, met every day of the week. And uh, my wife, my now wife, was a member of that group and she asked me to come up and speak. And, you know, a little speaking thing became a cup of coffee, became a proposal, and became now a 15-year marriage, you know. And, uh, and so when, you know, um, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, so when we, uh, we got together and all, we, we wanted to start a group. Me and my wife, you know, we, we had our own home groups. We wanted to start our own group, kind of like, you know, Kitty Charlie of the Jerseys, you know. And uh, so we joined, we sought this group, and we put, got a steering committee together, and we ironed it out, a big book study group, and then we prayed. We prayed for 30 people to show up. And that first night, 175 people showed up. And we averaged 300 people every Sunday night with that blue book in front of you. And I'm telling you, Someone said it this weekend, a pocket of enthusiasm. You walk into my, the cafeteria is about the size of this room, and there's two people there, there's two people there, there's two people there, they're all reading the book with each other. I mean, in the spirit, when you walk in, it goes, yeah, let's be honest, we walk in, it means you, it's the night of the living dead, you know? But you walk in the group, and I know there's great groups all over, but the spirit is just, it lights you up, and we were so excited. But we needed a GSR because we became a home group. Now, they asked me to be the GSR, I'm not gonna be a GSR. I can't stand that stuff. Service? Who needs that stuff, right? But, you know, and the reason why I was saying that, because my middle name is Contempt Prior to Investigation. And, because uh, I remember I was like three years sober. Somebody said, go to a district meeting. I went to a district meeting, and, like you were talking about a pamphlet, and I thought it was a union meeting. I said, who needs that crap? And I walked out. And, uh, but what happened was I became a GSR for this group, and all of a sudden God said, and again, this is all the power of God in my life, and you know, I have such resistance to this stuff, but God keeps on unfolding his path, unfolding his path, unfolding his path. You know, the question is, am I willing to get on it? Am I willing to get on this path? You know, and the only problem is, none of you guys can give me that willingness. That willingness must come from me. My willingness and desire has to be something from the inside. So here I am of a GSR, I'm learning a lot about, you know, the structure of AA. I become a DCM. In Jersey, we have these things called section coordinators who are kind of babysitters to a, district, a bunch of DCMs. And I, you know, I'm in a meeting one day, and there's this real tall guy, and he's, he's doing a little unofficial poll in the AA meeting. And the poll is this. He wants everyone in the, in the, in the meeting to think about something. And the question he poses to everyone is this. How'd you get to AA? I'm not waiting for an answer. I'm just letting you ponder that. How did I get to AA? You know, none of us imagined AA. None of us were walking by a, chair, uh, a church and saying, you know what, I think I'll walk in there and stop drinking. <laughs> none of us done that. Right? It's always been some sort of service, and I didn't understand that. It's always been some piece of literature. I didn't understand that. And what happened, this guy started to open my mind to something I didn't even know existed in AA. It's called AA, you know? <laughs> And all of a sudden, you know, I, I started to like, well, he became a service sponsor. I didn't even know what they were. And he started to guide me through the traditions. He started to guide me through the concepts. He started making me get a, he started to make me raise my hand when I didn't want to raise my hand. Anyone in this room feel like that? 
no, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? You know, you have those conversations with your arm once in a while? Yeah, I always have them. So here I am, you know, I'm at an area assembly, and he goes, make yourself available to be the area chair. I'm like, area chair? I have no clue what that means, you know? Well, I did, but not like what he was asking me to do. And so I went against the sitting alternate area chair, and we went for an election. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you've ever been to an area assembly. We went five rounds, and we went to the hat. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. I almost had a heart attack watching this. First of all, I couldn't believe my name, the low-life Jimmy, was on the board. And God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. But I lost on the hat. But I like to still remind him, he's the, now the alternate delegate, I still like to remind him that I did beat you on the popular vote. You just got me on the hat. <laughs> Ego is always involved, isn't it? But two years later, you know, I made myself available, and you know, I stand here now, 16 months into my uh, into my position, I'm the area chair of Northern New Jersey, Area 44, you know, and uh, and that might not mean a lot to some of you people in this room, but I'll let you know what it means to me. Fifth tradition says that each group has but one primary purpose: to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Ask yourself this question. Who's the alcoholic that still suffers? Is he in here? Is it the newcomer? She's here. I know you girls are going to grab her up. How about you old timers who maybe have fallen asleep in your recovery? Right? He started to open mind that it's not that the structure of Alcoholics Anonymous isn't about the person who's already here. It's about the person who's out there who doesn't know where in here. And he started to open my mind on that. I never looked at AA in that way. You know, he made me read a book that I bet you not a lot of people never read in this room. It's called the Service Manual. And on the Service Manual, that's a, that's a, it's a doozy. Uh, and in that Service Manual, you turn to page S20, and you're going to read a story about a Class A trustee, Byrne Smith. And what Byrne Smith did, he wrote this little article in there, or a little, a little portion of his uh, conference talk in 1954. And the question was, why do we have a conference? Why do we do it, guys? Why do we show up and do what we do? It's not to ensure the recovery of the person who's here. We're here. Because we know what to do when we get that newcomer. We get him at that kitchen table. We start breaking him down. We start helping him have a spiritual experience. And then what do we tell him at the end? Go help. Because that's the basic service of Alcoholics Anonymous. One drunk helping another. So in this little story, Byrne Smith is talking about this. And again, it's opening my mind to AA. And all of a sudden, in that little story, he goes, again, we're not trying to ensure the, you know, ensure the sobriety that people are already here. But what about that guy right now? The good mayor said, there's a hundred restaurants in this town. I wonder how many I would have gotten thrown out if I lived here. Maybe not McDonald's or Popeye's or the other one, but, but how many people are in that restaurant last night that don't know that we're in here? I bet you there was a man in there last night that was looking for a solution to his problem and not know that there's hundreds of men in here that have a solution to his problem. I bet you last night in Eureka Springs there was a, a single mom with three kids who was at the end of her rope and she couldn't wait to put those kids down and crack that bottle of wine so she could just wash her day away. And little did she know, there's a bunch of beautiful women in this room right now that have a solution to her problem. I don't know if Eureka Springs has a hospital, but I'm pretty goddamn sure that last night a baby was born destined for alcoholism in that hospital. So my whole point is, ladies and gentlemen, is that, like I was taught, 
is I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility that the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous always stay open to give that person the same shot that everyone in this room has been given. And that's why I got involved in service, because that's what we do in service. We carry their message to the alcoholic who doesn't know we exist. And we do that in a lot of different ways. We do it through our committees. We do it through our literature. I mean, we're talking about the big book country here, right? I mean, where do you think our big book came from? Well, I told you where it was started, on 17 William Street, in Hank Parkhurst's office. I don't know if this is going to work, Bill, but start writing. And here we sit here this weekend, 2,000 strong. You know, uh, I'm just going to wrap this up. I think I'm at the end of the hour. You know, we have a ritual in New Jersey. I don't know how you guys celebrate down here in Arkansas and Oklahoma. Or I think it's called Missouri. I don't know what you call it. Missouri, Missouri something like that. Missouri, Missouri, something like that. In Missouri, I hear that, uh, well, in New Jersey, we have this 90-day celebration, right? We have 90-day celebrants, and we have one-year celebrants. And we had this little, we used to give out, I don't know if you guys do, a triangle, right? And on that triangle was a G on one side, AA on the other side. And the old-time sponsor would always remind you that you were the little insignificant dot that was in the middle. But what they would always tell you, though, is this, that if you kept God in one hand and AA in the other hand, you would never have a hand to pick up a drink. Right? I see a new friend who celebrated two days. There's your answer. There's your answer. Get involved. Hold God in one hand, AA in the other hand. You'll never have a hand to pick up a drink and throw yourself into this wonderful fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. There used to be a great speaker, and you guys might have had him years ago. I don't even know. His name was Jack C. He was from Hagerstown, Maryland. Judge Jack. Right? And Judge Jack was an incredible guy, funny guy. You know, I'll tell you, Ken Devaney, Jack C., I know Lee has them up there. You want to get those CDs. Those are classics, you know. And, uh, and Jack C., if he got to know you, we had him in Jersey once, and if he got to know you, what he would do, no matter where, no matter where he would go, he would send you a postcard from a conference. Now, I don't even know how long that list of postcards were. And Jack would tell you, yeah, having a great day in Eureka Springs, great people, yeah, all this fun stuff. But he would always sign it at the end, sober sure is better. Love Jack. Man, he wasn't lying, was he? Thank you for my life. Yeah.